the question of whether humanity is alone in the universe or whether there's alien life out there, whether the universe is teeming with civilizations, has been one that has captivated humanity's imagination since we first gazed upon the stars and turned our eyes skyward. What is out there? Well, so far, we haven't yet found any surefire evidence of an alien civilization or even of life beyond planet Earth in this universe. But the possibilities are tremendous for what's out there. And humanity hasn't just been sitting still waiting for aliens to come to us. We've actively been searching for them. Where are we today and what are our prospects for finding them? Find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. I'm so pleased today that we're exploring the question of alien life, and I'd like to welcome to the program a spectacular guest. We have on the program with us today Dr. Seth Shostak, a senior astronomer and institute fellow at the SETI Institute, and one of the most important players in the search for alien intelligence and life beyond Earth. Seth, it's my pleasure to have you on the show. Well, it's my pleasure to be here, Ethan. So... We first started looking in earnest for aliens back in the late 50s, early 60s, wasn't it? Well, that's when uh, modern SETI experiments, SETI being the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, not just life, but clever life. uh, Yes, that began in 1960 in earnest, if you will. Although people were thinking about it as far back as 150 years ago. Now, when we when we take a look at this, when we take a look out into the universe and we're looking for alien intelligence, it makes sense that the way we look is the way we ourselves broadcast. The very first method we used as far as modern SETI goes is using radio signals, which were far and away the most dominant signal that humanity had sent out into the universe up until that point in time. That's correct. And you could say that maybe that's a little myopic. Maybe we're missing the boat by assuming that the aliens use radio for communication because we do. Now, now mind you, I want you to keep in mind that if you're talking about uh, approaches to finding some cosmic company back in the Victorian era, right, Uh, the late 19th century or even earlier than that, people were talking about using light to communicate. I mean, there were plants that were cooked up in the 1860s to build big mirrors to reflect sunlight back onto Mars, you know, to kind of signal the Martians the same way that the cowboys would signal one another in the old films about, uh, you know, an Indian attack or something like that. So you could say, well, you know, light and radio, they're really not any different. They're just uh, all electromagnetic radiation. So, you know, that idea had been broached, but of course, It's unlikely there are any Martians that are going to look for flashes from Earth. When radio finally was developed in the 20th century, people recognized fairly early, even even Tesla and and Marconi, that radio might be the better way to communicate. And uh, beginning in 1960, we actually did some experiments. 
Right. And and radio has a lot of advantages. If we're thinking about the light spectrum, all the electromagnetic radiation that's out there, radio waves have some huge advantages over other forms of light. If we're, you know, if we were planning on contacting aliens beacon of Gondor style where where we light a fire and then someone else lights a fire and someone else lights a fire and you can see it, that's sort of like that mirror reflecting idea. Um but that's not really the smartest way to do it. For one, we know that the interstellar medium is full of light-blocking dust, and the type of light it is superior at blocking are short-wavelength lights, like visible light. But if we go to radio light, the dust in the galaxy is mostly transparent to radio light. If we want to encode information in a signal, well, radio has much, much more... Um, it has a much more significant amount of data you can encode for the same amount of energy because the energy per photon is so much lower in the radio. What are some other reasons that radio is a compelling choice to make as far as looking for intelligent life out there and broadcasting to potential intelligent civilizations? Well, you're certainly right, Ethan, that, that radio offers a lot of advantages certainly over visible light, the kind you can see with your eyeballs. Although if you go to infrared light, that, that does go through the dust and, and gas between the stars. So, you know, that might not be a bad deal. And it's also the case that with light, you can, you know, put more bits per second into your broadcast, even if the bits are more expensive. So it just depends on a sort of an economic argument. And, you know, I never begrudge the Klingons enough money to do whatever they're going to do. Who, who knows whether that's true or not. But some other advantages of radio are that, uh, it, you know, it, it tends to spread out because of the size of your antenna. It tends to spread out more than, than a laser pointer signal, for example, would. And that means that you don't necessarily need to know exactly where the people at the other end are. The other, if they are people, uh, the other advantage is that, in fact, uh, uh, radio is is rather cheap to you know to to send it's pretty easy to build a radio transmitter and the universe is pretty quiet in most regions of the radio spectrum certainly the ones that we use for SETI in other words there isn't a lot of noise if you go out at night and you look up at the sky you see all the starlight and you know maybe there are a few planets there so forth and so on so you know the universe has lots of light in it but not so much not so much in terms of radio waves. Well, one of the things that is sort of interesting to think about is we know that we at planet Earth, we produce a large amount of human-made intelligent radio signals. We we create them here on Earth. In fact, there's there's talk that if we ever wanted to do like the optimal radio search, uh, the best place to do that would be on the far side of the moon because it's the one place in the solar system that's shielded from all of the interfering radio emissions we produce here on Earth. But if we knew everything that planet Earth produced, how close to us would planet earth need to be if we were to envision a clone of planet earth doing exactly what humans are doing on earth today how close would planet earth need to be for our current instruments to be able to detect the intelligent extraterrestrial signals that an earth-like planet would generate well in general that's kind of a discouraging uh, computation because if you took our best SETI experiments today 
and you said, okay, uh, how far away could they detect, you know, an Earth analog, a, a Earth 2 out there with all the same stuff that we have? It wouldn't be very far. In most cases, it wouldn't even be as far as a light year. And a light year is pretty far if you're considering what's on the odometer of your car. But a, but a light year is actually quite quite short compared to the distances to the star. The nearest uh, other stars are like four light years away. So, you know, you couldn't even detect the aliens if they had a planet like Earth with the, you know, Earth technology. You couldn't even detect them at the distance of the nearest other star system in general. And that, that applies to things like their television transmissions or FM radio, that kind of thing. However, the most powerful transmissions from Earth are neither of those. There are radar sets. And, uh, you know, it might not be very interesting to listen to radar signals, but those are the signals that make it farthest into space at any given sensitivity level. In other words, those are our best calling cards. Those are our hailing channels, if you will. And the most powerful of our radars, actually, you could pick up with the equipment that we have at uh, distances of hundreds of light years. So if you're willing to listen to radar, you could find Earth if you put a lot of effort into it. So the Klingons might be, uh, might be well aware of our airports. Well, that's interesting. Now, as far as listening goes, are we engaged in any active projects with SETI to listen for, say, alien radar, knowing that that's where we're producing the highest signal-to-noise ratio? Well, we don't really make that kind of a distinction. In other words, we don't say, okay, we're going to build this equipment to look specifically for radar. There are various kinds of radar, and you can assume that the aliens probably have radar, even if they don't have, I don't know, if they don't have air transport, don't use that anymore, whatever they got. But radar is great for, for example, uh, learning about long period comets in your solar system that might come, you know, crashing down on your planet and ruin everybody's whole day. So, you know, they probably have radar, but we don't know what kind of radar. Does the radar sort of move up and down the radio dial? Does it sweep in frequency? Or does it uh, consist of a bunch of pulses? So we don't, you know, we don't try and make our receiving equipment very specific because, honestly, you don't have much idea of what a, a society that might be 100,000 or 100 million years more advanced than yours is doing technologically. And that brings up a really interesting point that I'm glad you brought up because I wanted to touch on it. When we take a look at all that SETI can observe, at all of these signals out there, which is really the full suite of this long wavelength electromagnetic spectrum, what assumptions are we making about the types of signals that aliens are going to be sending, the types of signals that we're looking for that we're going to say, oh, this is unambiguously an intelligent alien signal out there. And what about the huge risk of false positives, of getting a naturally occurring signal saying that's interesting and conflating it with what you think might be extraterrestrials, even though it actually isn't? Yes, well, that that's a danger. Uh, you could get into newspapers for the wrong reason. You think you picked up E.T. and you just picked up, uh, you know, Earth transmissions. You picked up <laughs> Homo sapiens, which would not be a huge discovery, admittedly. But what uh, SETI experiments typically do is they look for narrow band signals. In other words, signals that are at one spot on the radio dial. And, and if you think about it, you know, if you're... Uh, turning the knob on your radio, if your radio has a knob anymore, you know, you'll, you'll hear mostly static and then you, you'll come across a signal. It's your 
you know, your favorite uh, country and western station, and you'll just hear a sort of a squeal, and then you'll hear the music, because it's at one spot on the dial. It's at 840 kilohertz on the dial, or whatever. Okay, so that's the signature of a transmitter. If you're a pulsar, quasar, hot gas, cold gas, all these things make radio noise. Jupiter makes radio noise. The sun makes radio noise. But that radio noise is all over the dial. It's at every place you tune. So by having a uh, receiver that is looking for signals that are only at one frequency, only at one spot on the dial, then you essentially eliminate all that natural static, and you can find static that's being caused by somebody's transmitter. Now, that's really interesting, but there are other natural signals in the universe that produce these very narrow line emissions also, aren't there? Like we have, for example, water masers, which are examples of lasers in space that are naturally produced by the molecules present in interstellar gas clouds. Is it possible that anything we would identify and say, oh, that looks like an interesting, potentially alien signal could actually have a a natural origin like that? Well, one should never say never, but the facts are that the interstellar masers, as you talk about, uh, you know, their frequencies are generally known, so that, that gives you a sort of a leg up on not confusing a, a natural emission with, with what you're looking for. But the other thing is that even those natural emitters, they're, yes, they're narrow band, they're at one spot on the radio dial, but they're not that narrow band. You know, they're typically a couple of hundred hertz wide. And the kind of signals that SETI usually looks for are one hertz wide or even less. So, uh, you know, you wouldn't even get confused by an interstellar maser if you accidentally pointed your antenna in the direction of one of these things, tune up and down the dial and you say, whoa, you know, here's a narrow band signal. It wouldn't be narrow enough to fool you. Well, that's really interesting because, you know, we have motions we can't get rid of in in the cosmos. When we're looking at astrophysical objects, they have a temperature, they have a speed distribution, they have, as we call it in astronomy, a velocity dispersion. And it sounds like if we're thinking about what sort of signals an alien civilization would be producing, they wouldn't suffer from that same problem. So the lines that they're emitting from their transmitters should be narrow and peaked in a way that naturally occurring signals wouldn't be. That's correct. That's correct. And that's the discriminant we use. Now, you know, it, it isn't to say that this is the kind of signal that you know, all the Klingons are uh, transmitting. But if you look at the signals that uh, we produce, uh, television signals, the old television signals had uh, very sharp, what are called carrier waves, which is just one component of the TV signal that was very, very narrow, you know, only a hertz wide less, actually. Uh, today, we have digital television. Okay, that's a little different, but it still has these carriers. So uh, almost every kind of transmitter, uh, except some theoretical ones you can, you can design on a chalkboard, maybe. Uh, they do have these narrow band components. And certainly, if E.T. is deliberately trying to get in touch, and of course one doesn't know, but if that's the case, then they will put a lot of the power of their transmitter into a very small part of the radio dial because that produces a signal that really stands out. Now, there's a lot of talk about humanity 
attempting to send these very first signals with the intent of an alien civilization receiving them and noticing, oh, here we are. This is what humanity looks like. This is what an intelligent alien signal looks like. Without us having detected any, there's still an effort being made on the part of Either it's called Active SETI or METI or uh, there's a specific project I know called the Interstellar Beacon where people are considering for the first time actually broadcasting an active message with sufficient power and sufficiently narrowly peaked that an alien civilization could potentially detect us if we happen to broadcast in the right direction. Well, yes. I mean, this is actually, to be honest, this is an idea that's also very old, uh, going all the way back to, for example, those projects uh, that were conceived during the time of the American Civil War, where we would broadcast a message to the Martians saying, hey, you know, we're the Earthlings. We'd love to get in touch with you guys and uh, maybe pay a visit sometime in the future. I mean, so the idea of transmitting is an old one. The idea of doing it with modern technology, radio technology or maybe with big lasers, but certainly with radio, is indeed popular amongst uh, some people. Uh, I, there are other people who say, oh, you shouldn't do that because it's dangerous. But, you know, with that aside, I, I don't think it's a bad idea. The problem is that if the nearest society is, you know, 100 light years away, and they might not be even that close, but let's say they are. All right, so you broadcast a signal, a hey, uh, Earth, Earth calling, hello, anybody there? All right, it takes 100 years for that signal to get there. And if they uh, have the inclination to reply, you know, then it's another 100 years for their response to get back to you, uh, by which point your personal interest in the whole project has probably gone away, and you've undoubtedly lost your funding too. So uh, this, this active SETI, you know, you got to have the, the, the long view. Well, I think I think that's absolutely right. And we know as a species that having that type of long view is something that humanity struggles with. But realistically, if we're talking about alien civilization, contacting aliens, looking for evidence that there are intelligent aliens out there, these are the only active approaches that we know of. Everything else that we can do is passive. It's looking at seasonal changes in an alien exoplanet its atmosphere. It's looking with sufficient resolution to determine if they've made huge planet-wide changes to their planet that, that only an intelligent species would make. It's looking for, for evidence out there that, that we can conceive of a, a species making to their world. But if we want to have round-trip communication, you've got to be willing to look at least on decade-level timescales, because that's the amount of time it's going to take to go out to a star, to have them receive, process, decode our message, encode their own message message and send it back to us. Round trip time, even at the speed of light to interstellar civilizations, has got to be at the very least decadal, if not century or millennium long timescales. Absolutely right. And, uh, you know, you might consider that an impediment, uh, which which I agree with you. It kind of is. I mean, you got to have a lot of patience in this conversation if it's going to take 100 years for a, a back and forth. You know, you, you say, hey, we're the Earthlings. Hello, anybody there? And they come back and, you know, they say, could you please repeat that? I mean, you know, it's, it's uh, going to be pretty slow going. On the other hand, I mean, just consider this. Suppose... Uh, you had suggested to the, I don't know, maybe the Aztecs in Mexico back in uh, 1400, you say, you know, 
uh, you go down to the beach here and you look at the Atlantic. Uh, it's uh, there's a lot of water over there, and maybe uh, there's somebody on the other side of all that water. Uh, any interest in knowing whether there's anybody there? And uh, most of them would say, no, I'm too busy uh, harvesting the corn here. But some of them might say, yeah, that would be really interesting to find out. So you can say, okay, here's my uh, my my plan to you: uh, just to build a, a I don't know a thousand clay pots and put little messages. Uh, you know, you don't have a written language, but you know, put. Uh, I don't know, knotted up string or something, put some messages in those pots, make sure they're waterproof, throw them into the surf here, and who knows, maybe in uh, 10 years you'll you'll get a pot back from anybody on the other side. Would that be of interest to you? Would you be willing to do that? And I I can hardly imagine that they they all would say, nope, no interest. I, I think some of them would be interested. Yeah, and you know the the accuracy of your hypothetical Aztec aside, I think that's a that's a reasonable concept to say. You know, if we are curious at all about what's out there beyond what we can access, then we owe it to ourselves to look in every single way possible because every point of light that's out there in the sky, as far as someone who's curious and open minded about the possibility that there are intelligent aliens out there has to look on each one of those points of light as a chance that it has a chance of housing an extraterrestrial civilization and we might have hundreds of billions or even up to a trillion potential chances based on the number of planets and the types of planets we know of that exist around stars. If I had had this conversation with you 30 years ago, we would have only had speculation about the number of possible planets out there and the number of potentially habitable Earth-sized planets in the right temperature zone around their star for potential life. But now, thanks to exoplanet studies, the stellar wobble or radial velocity method, the transit method, a little bit of direct imaging, we're starting to understand and characterize the types of planets we find around all the stars that are out there. And based on the latest results from NASA's Kepler and other missions, it's reasonable to assume that there are at least tens of billions of planets similar to Earth in size and temperature, if not necessarily the same type of star that they orbit, out there in our galaxy alone. Absolutely the case. In fact, the best estimates, and these constitute kind of a an extrapolation from the Kepler data, which might or might not turn out to be the case. But it seems like something like maybe one in five star systems has a planet where you might have liquid water on the surface, you might have an atmosphere. I mean, we don't know if they do, but at least there are those candidates. And one in five, when you're talking about a galaxy that has a couple of hundred billion stars, and one in five of them has a potential uh, Earth 2.0 or whatever you want to call it. I mean, that's a that's a lot of planet pleasure. So uh, it's hard to believe that with all those planets, and indeed it would number in the at least tens of billions just in our galaxy. And by the way, there are at least a, a thousand billion other galaxies. Now, uh, with all that real estate, it's just hard to believe that it's all sterile and uninteresting. I mean, maybe so, but that would make that would make Earth very special. And uh, you know, I think Earth is special, but it's not that special. 
Well, that's a good question, I think, because this is one of the big unknowns when it comes to the quest for life beyond Earth, is how special are we? We know from looking in our own solar system that the type of life we find on Earth is certainly unique in our solar system. It's possible that we have, you know, past life that lived on Mars, or life in the cloud tops of Venus, or life in a subsurface ocean on one of the gas giant moons that are out there, or maybe even on Pluto or some other Kuiper Belt object. But as far as this complex, differentiated life that we find here on Earth since the Cambrian explosion, or what we quantify as intelligent life, this technologically advanced tool-using civilization, you know, the Cambrian explosion was half a billion years ago. Humanity's only been technologically advanced for a couple of hundred years at most. That's, that's only about one part in a million of the timeline of that complex differentiated life on Earth. So when we're talking about, hey, we need these planets that might have liquid water and atmospheres on their surfaces, we need these planets to have developed life from non-life, which is no sure thing. And no, we really don't have an idea of what the odds there are. You could be optimistic and say, ah, 10%, or you could be pessimistic and say, there's a one in a million shot of that. Same thing for that first cell coming into existence and surviving and reproducing to becoming that complex differentiated Cambrian explosion level sort of stuff. Again, that could be something that's very common once life takes start, takes hold, or it could be something that's extremely rare, maybe another one in a million. And if you say it's again one in a million to go from that sort of life, to go from starfish and sharks and jellyfish to human beings, well, all of a sudden, you're taking a look at 10 to the 11, 10 to the 12 chances for something with a 1 in 10 to the 18 odds of happening, and maybe it is. Maybe Earth is the only example of intelligent, spacefaring life in our galaxy. Well, uh, that would be kind of a lonely circumstance, but it's certainly possible. I have to say your calculation uh, reminded me of a little soliloquy that Jodie Foster made uh, when she was standing next to the <clears throat> Arecibo Observatory down in Puerto Rico uh, with, uh, what was it, McConaughey, yes, what was his name? Um, Matthew McConaughey. Matthew McConaughey. Yeah, I always wonder what his function in the film was, but the women tell me it really doesn't matter. But uh, <laughs> yeah, she, says, she sort of gestures toward the sky, and she says, well, imagine if only one in a million stars out there has a planet like Earth, and only one in a million of those uh, has developed life, and only one in a million of those uh, has developed intelligent life, then there are you know, hundreds of thousands of civilizations up there. Well, she got the math wrong by six or eight orders of magnitude. But on the other hand, it was only Jodie Foster. So, uh, you know, it, it could be. But in the end, what you're dealing with here are very large numbers. And it's, it's not that we're only looking at 10 other possible uh, locales for cosmic company. We're not. We're looking at tens of billions. And it's hard to believe that unless there's something very special about our own planet and the history of our own planet, then there's just lots of stuff out there. There's lots of uh, life, and uh, you know maybe most of it is stupid. It could be like the neighborhood where I live. But 
On the other hand, it could be that uh, intelligence, which after all has a certain degree of survival value, uh, that, uh, you know, it's not all that rare. If it only happens one in a thousand or one in a million times when you have life, that's still the numbers are big enough to accommodate that. So uh, it's kind of like, uh, I don't know, before Copernicus, uh, people saying, you know, Earth is special and uh, it's the center of the universe and it's certainly the center of the solar system. Well, all that was wrong. Uh, if you think you're special, you know, maybe your mom agrees with you, but uh, you know, science usually doesn't. Yeah, and that's uh, and that's an interesting point because right now we could have an in-depth conversation about what the odds are of developing life from non-life, of developing this complex differentiated life from that simple single-celled first life, or of developing intelligence with, you know, highly encephalated brains or whatever things you think you need in order to become a technological spacefaring civilization that's that's certainly up for debate. But the big question that I have is, in the absence of surefire knowledge, is there any way to obtain it? Is there any way to know what the actual odds are other than to go out and look and do as close to an exhaustive search as our technological capabilities will allow? Well, lamentably, there's no way to prove that they're not out there. This is not like the uh, the method of science you might learn in middle school, right? Where the idea is you have an hypothesis, which is already tough for a lot of kids because, you know, that's kind of Greek <laughs> hypothesis. You have an hypothesis and then you design an experiment to falsify the hypothesis. In other words, if you can prove that your idea is wrong with an experiment, okay, that's called science. I, to me, that sounds like a real discouraging thing to do, but you might do it. Uh, but there's no way to falsify the hypothesis that there's somebody out there. You can look until uh, the cows uh, come home. Uh, and, and where have they gone anyhow? Well, yeah, you can, you can do that. Uh, but if you don't find anything, it doesn't mean that nobody's out there. It just means maybe, maybe you were listening on the wrong part of the radio dial. Maybe you didn't have enough sensitivity. Maybe you were aiming your antennas in the wrong direction. I mean, there are just many, many ways to fail. So you can't prove that nobody's out there. All you can hope to do is to discover that there is somebody out there. It's like, it's like sending Captain Cook into the South Pacific. Go find all the islands we don't know about, Jim. And, uh, you know, if he comes back and says, well, I spent a month and I didn't find anything and then we ran out of food. Uh, that doesn't prove that there aren't any islands out there, right? No, it doesn't. That's a very Ken Marino version of Captain Cook, too. I, I like it. Um, I sort of am of the opinion that by looking you know, to see if, for example, if aliens have visited us or if aliens have sent signals our way that we know how to detect. That's that's a way that if we get a positive, we're going to know for sure, oh, there absolutely are aliens. But if we see that they're not there, then we run into that Carl Sagan problem that an absence of evidence is not the same as evidence for absence. So even if all of our radio efforts come up empty. Even if we exhaustively look at every star system and every planetary system we can think of out there in our galaxy and it comes back empty and we don't find any evidence of aliens, that doesn't mean there aren't intelligent extraterrestrials out there. It means that our first method of looking for them hasn't yielded any fruit. I'm curious 
for maybe future generations, if that's something we actively encounter, if we look out at all the different star systems out there in the galaxy and we don't find any intelligent radio signals from them, what are some other options that we might want to consider of how it could be possible for an extraterrestrial civilization to be detectable by us? Well, I get suggestions uh, just about every third day or so from uh, from people who have ideas about that. And many of them are uh, <laughs> kind of derivative from what they see on television. They say, you guys uh, should give up on looking for radio waves. You should look for subspace communication or uh, hyperdimensional physics or whatever. These are terms that they, they'll hear uh, in the movies or on TV or late night radio. But we don't have any physics that explains how any of that works. So it's really tough to build the equipment. So maybe those sorts of things exist. But if you don't know the physics, it doesn't matter because you can't do anything about it. So there's, there's that. But there are some suggestions that, uh, you know, make some sense. I mean, uh, for years, people have been telling me, you guys should be looking for neutrinos. They're communicating with neutrinos, which are very high-speed particles that have the nice advantage that they go through almost everything, which means you don't have to point any place in particular. You, you can even get signals that are coming from the part of the universe that's on, on the other side of the Earth, if you will. It's, you're in the wrong, you know, you've got to wait 12 hours before you can see it in the sky. Uh, but, the, you know, the neutrinos will come right through the Earth and uh, you know, trip your uh, uh, detector. The problem is... Finding neutrinos is technically a very, very difficult thing, and you only detect one in 10 million of them or something like that. And as a consequence, it's maybe not a great way to communicate for various uh, economic reasons, if nothing else. But that's a suggestion. Other people will suggest, oh, what about gravitational waves, right? Gravitational waves are in the news a lot these days with LIGO and all that sort of thing. Uh, gravitational waves, again, they seem to go at the speed of light, best we can tell, but they don't go any faster. So they're not faster than radio, and it's also tough to detect and tough to produce gravitational waves. I mean, you know, how many people have the ability to slam two black holes together in their backyard to make a signal for the aliens? Even the aliens probably don't do that. So, you know, there are other suggestions. Some of them make sense, maybe. But to be honest, uh, light, radio waves, electromagnetic radiation, as uh, people call it, who, who like the Greek, uh, it's uh, it, it does seem to be the best you can do because it doesn't cost very much and it moves as fast as any information can move, the speed of light. And that seems to be pretty good if we're talking about looking within our own galaxy. But if we find that the universe, the galaxy, is, for example, radio mute as far as aliens are concerned, it seems to me that at least two of those gravitational waves might provide an advantage over electromagnetic waves when we start looking to extragalactic distances. And the big reason there is that the amplitude of gravitational waves doesn't spread out like it does for light. For light, the brightness drops off as one over the distance squared. So if your civilization is 10 times as far away, you're only getting one one hundredth of the signal. Or if it's 100 times farther away, you're only getting one ten thousandth of the signal because of how light spreads out. But gravitational waves, the amplitude doesn't drop as one over R squared. It only drops as one over R. So if you can detect some 
something that's one ten thousandth as bright as what you can detect in the Milky Way, then you can detect something 10,000 times farther away, which is an easy way to reach the edge of the visible universe in gravitational waves as compared to electromagnetic ones. And the thing I like about neutrinos is if you have, for example, a nuclear reactor, we know that nuclear reactors produce neutrinos, they produce anti-neutrinos with a specific energy signature. If we see that energy signature coming from an alien world that we can identify where it is, where it came from, what the energy spectrum is, then we could say, hey, there are nuclear reactions going on on that planet. So either you have intelligent aliens there undergoing nuclear power, like developing nuclear power, working with it, or you have an Oklo type situation where you have just this rare and spectacular presence of a natural nuclear reactor that can occur in the early stages of a planet. And both of those seem like possibilities we should keep in the back of our head. Yes, indeed. I, I, I don't disagree. When it comes to neutrinos, maybe there is some reason to use neutrinos to send bits of info around. But uh, if that's the case, I, I count on the University of Wisconsin and other places which have giant neutrino detectors. In the case of the University of Wisconsin, it's a big kilometer-sized cube of ice down in Antarctica. Uh, it's called Ice Cube, a, a triumph of ingenious nomenclature. And, uh, you know, they're looking for neutrinos. And if they can find some neutrinos that they say, well, these are not naturally produced, Maybe they found ET, but obviously SETI experiments, which are incredibly constrained by lack of money, there's no government money for SETI, uh, we, we, can, we can't compete with the big physics experiments. So let the physicists do their thing. And uh, many of them are very smart, I have to say. And if they find some neutrino source that they say, you know, Bob, I don't know what this is, but it's not nature. Well, then, then, then they get the Nobel Prize and they get that uh, fish dinner with the King of Sweden. <laughs> well, that sounds real appealing. I hope they're serving lutefisk. Um, but whatever it is that they're serving there, you know, SETI is very special because it's looking in a very specific way that realistically no one else is looking in. And when we see something that doesn't add up, Either we know that this is the possibility that it's aliens, or there's a new phenomenon, a new astrophysical phenomenon out there in the universe. And I can think of two instances that have been kind of spectacular from a, from a public outreach point of view, where we considered it would have been aliens or it could have been aliens, even though it turned out not to be. It was an interesting thing to investigate. And one of them is the wow signal, and the other one is this mystery of fast radio bursts. And I was curious what you had to say about those two topics. Yeah, well, uh, let me take the latter one first. Fast radio bursts are uh, fast becoming one of the most uh, intriguing uh, subjects of study for astronomers. Uh, we found a few dozen of these fast radio bursts. They're just a little quick burst of radio energy. And uh, they also drop down the radio dial. They're like a slide whistle. So if you converted those fast radio bursts to, to audio frequencies, what you'd hear is, like that, but much faster than I, I'm able to whistle. It would be more like a tenth of a second, right? Okay, so what are these things? I mean, nobody knows what they are. Uh, it, uh, some of them come from very far away, at least the only one we know where we have a good 
distance estimate is coming from billions of light years away. And, uh, you know, just to keep everybody's perspective clear on this, uh, to the other side of our galaxy is only 100,000 light years, less than that. So uh, when you're talking about billions of light years, this is coming from really far away. Uh, consequently, whatever it is, it must be very, very powerful. Okay. And uh, so we don't know what it is. It could be some sort of collision, something natural, most likely. But not everybody likes the idea of a natural explanation. Whenever astronomers find something they don't understand, which after all is their job description, um, you know, there, there are going to be a few people who say it's probably aliens. Well, it hasn't been so far. Quasars, pulsars, all of those things were ascribed to alien activity. None of them were. But, you know, maybe there's a first time and maybe it'll happen. It could be that the fast radio bursts turn out to be aliens. Uh, the other thing is the wow signal. That was picked up in 19, it was 1977 at the Ohio State Radio Observatory in lovely Columbus, Ohio. And, uh, you know, it was a signal that was seen uh, and not seen again. People have looked over and over and over again. But it certainly was a signal that seemed to conform to all the requirements of being an alien signal. Now, uh, the one thing we do know is that the... Uh, Ohio State Radio Observatory antenna system actually had two antennas, really. And as a result, this signal was observed, and then a little over a minute later, it was observed again. It was found the first time, not found the second time. What does that mean? Who knows what that means? It could be that it uh, really was E.T., and uh, but E.T., you know, had to go on a uh, you know, weekend break or summer vacation or something and turned off their transmitter in that one-minute interval, and that was it. Or... It could be that it was some sort of man-made interference that we didn't recognize, and uh, that's why it was not seen a second time. The trouble is, if you if you can't verify the result, you're not going to be able to get much of a paper out of it. Uh, it. You can't say that this was the discovery of the century, much though you might wish that. No, and we've seen that happen in physics as well. In 1982, uh, there was a famous experiment that got published in Physical Review Letters where someone named Blas Cabrera had an experiment running with eight turns of wire in it uh, to attempt to detect a magnetic monopole because if a, if a monopole passed through that turn of wire, it would register a signal of exactly eight magnetons. And so one day, it happened to be Valentine's Day in 1982, no one was in the office, and they came back the next day, and lo and behold, there was this discontinuous jump in the signal of eight magnetons that occurred on Valentine's Day. And so people went out, and they built scaled-up versions of this, and they started looking for more, and in all of the experiments that had ever been done, no one ever found a second magnetic monopole. The next year, on Valentine's Day, Steven Weinberg wrote a poem to Blas Cabrera, and it said, roses are red, violets are blue, it's time for monopole number two. And it never arrived. And so you gotta wonder, with the wow signal, even though we might like to imagine, oh, it was aliens, and they just turned it off just as we started to look. We just caught them at the very tail end of this. That's much like looking at that magnetic monopole and going, wow, what are the odds? We found the one magnetic monopole in the whole universe, and that's the whole story. It seems like a case of either wishful thinking or special pleading to me. Well, it could be. Now, I've certainly talked to the people at Ohio State who were involved in the experiment, and they, they will readily admit 
that it certainly, you know, looked like a duck and quacked like a duck, but they're not sure that it was a duck, which is to say an alien transmission. And uh, we here at the SETI Institute and many other uh, operations have tried to find that signal again, pointing their antennas in the same direction of the sky as the wow signal uh, was detected and using receivers that are actually much better than what they had in 1977 and have never seen it a second time. So, uh, uh, yes, Stephen Weinberg has the right idea. If you can't find it a second time, all you can say is it's a puzzle, Bob. And that's and that's a great way to look at this. We've tried to look for intelligent radio signals around every object that we know of, as far as I can tell, that's displayed these bizarre and otherwise inexplicable properties. SETI took a look at the interstellar interloper that passed through our solar system in 2017, Oumuamua, and we didn't find any evidence that it was transmitting anything that would be extraterrestrial in nature other than natural you know natural reflected emission from our own sun we didn't find anything evidence for an alien megastructure or any sort of alien transmission around Tabby's star or the WTF star that exhibits those mysterious flux dips without infrared emission. As far as I can tell, SETI is a wonderful tool to be able to use to ask that question. But so far, we haven't gotten anything that has given us a compelling yes or even a compelling maybe or probably. That's right. Uh, that's a fact. And, and to be honest, uh, on a personal level, you know, if I'm at a party and I get invited to at least uh, one or two parties per decade, if I'm at a party and people ask, what do you do for a living? And if I tell them, uh, uh, they say, well, have you found anything? And I have to admit, no, we hadn't. And if we had found something, you would know about it. And I probably wouldn't be at this party. I, I'd be in Stockholm enjoying enjoying a good dinner. So, uh, yeah, that's the situation. But on the other hand, you know, you could have asked uh, the explorers of the uh, 15th, 16th, 17th century, and maybe even later than that. But you say, do you think there's a continent at the bottom of the earth? They, some of them would say, well, I've gone as far south as I could with my sailing ship, and I didn't find anything. But who knows? Maybe it's there. You know, we just have to look more. And that's the situation with SETI. Until you find something, all you can say is, we haven't found anything. So it's fail, 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 fail. And then eventually one suspects, but can't prove, uh, it'll be success. And that'll be a very interesting day. So technologically, we seem to be limited by the amount of radio telescopes we have, the amount of observing time we spend looking for this, the amount of sky coverage we can get at any different time. In an ideal world where you had this windfall of resources and you could invest it however you thought it was most likely to turn up an alien civilization, to turn up a positive detection for extraterrestrial intelligence, what would be the dream machines that you you would build to help answer this question? Well, uh, I think if you had unlimited resources, or maybe not even unlimited, but just adequate, <laughs> uh, you would certainly build a dedicated instrument of receiving, uh, uh, an array of receiving antennas, such as we have, but make it much bigger, uh, to, you know, to just monitor as much of the sky as you could 24-7. I think that that's obviously something to do. But the other things to do 
are to look for flashing lights in the sky or, for that matter, flashing radio signals. All the signals we look for are assumed to be persistent. In other words, if you find them, you know, you can go back an hour later and still find it. Not like the wow signal, but you can find it. And then two weeks later, you come back and you'll find it again. Only then would you believe it. So you really need to design a system, and this is hardly impossible, where you can be sure that you found it the first time. Because it might only be on for, you know, 10 seconds <laughs> or something like that. Maybe not even that. And, uh, you, you know, you don't want to throw it out and say, well, we didn't see it again, so we don't know what it is. So it just goes into the drawer here as another mystery. Uh, you want to be able to find, find things that do not repeat. That's hard, but that may be essential. And it sounds like what you're asking for for something like that is something like pan stars or a scaled up version of Sloan Digital Sky Survey, except in the radio, something that gets either all sky coverage or a large amount of sky coverage on a relatively continuous basis or where a lot of sweeps can occur and you can get that same image over and over again to see how it's changing over time. How does it behave as time goes on? How does it behave as a continuum and are there any spikes that we can look for of interest? Yeah, you could do that, and that certainly would be a great idea. Another thing that's uh, maybe fairly obvious, but you, you should do, is have more than one installation, right? Because if you can pick up ET signal in North America, you can probably also pick it up in, in Europe or some other part of the globe that can also see that spot on the sky. And uh, consequently, that would make a great uh, instrument for finding something that was only flashing at you for a few seconds, okay? Because then you could believe it. You could sort of screen out all the interference from earthly activities like, uh, you know, telecommunications satellites or you know, the local radar set down at the airport or, uh, you know, a Stanford undergraduate prank. You could you could sort all that out. And uh, but nobody has the money to keep two observatories going at once for this kind of work. Right. And that's and that seems like it's a little unfortunate because we have the radio dishes. You know, we have the the Allen telescope array and Alma and the very large array. And we have the big 10 meter uh, dish at the South Pole. We have a lot of different sites, for example, that are part of the Event Horizon telescope that can that can view a huge amount of the sky at once in this wavelength range that we're interested in, but they're being used for other astronomical purposes besides just SETI. Yeah, well, exactly right. Uh, there are indeed uh, astronomical uh, instruments all around the world of various types, and, you know, not all of them is suitable are suitable for SETI. Most of them are not, actually. You need specialized receivers. Somebody would have to build and pay for that. But, uh, yeah, the, the, the antennas, if you will, are there. There are plenty of antennas. There are antennas everywhere, right? Uh, but you need the, the the right kind of receivers, the right kind of data processing, hardware and software and so forth. I mean, if if this became a national priority in the same sense that putting people on the moon was in 1960s, uh, you could do it. I mean, it, it doesn't violate physics, that's for sure. And it doesn't violate the, your abilities uh, when it comes to technology either. So it it could be done. But it's not a priority. People uh, are interested in aliens, but they're apparently not quite so interested in paying for a search. 
that's that's a shame, but that's where we are. Well, let me ask you, if there was a message that you could deliver to the general public to tell them, here's why you should be interested in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, what would that message look like? I, I don't think that they need to be told that there, there's some interest in it. My experience is that almost everyone is interested in the question. Is there somebody out there? I think that's hardwired into us to be curious about other beings that in some sense might be, I don't know, our competitors, maybe our mates, maybe our friends, whatever. People are interested. But I don't think anybody, well, I shouldn't say anybody, but I don't think that the majority of the public recognizes that there actually is the ability to maybe find out if that's true, whether there's somebody out there. I think people are very interested in that. I don't think that they're aware that in this country, for example, all the searches are uh, paid for by private uh, money. It's just people who have money who are interested enough to give some money to do that search. And that's great. But if astronomy relied on private donations, as as it did in the time of Galileo, right, If that were still the case today, you wouldn't see very much astronomy being conducted. It would be very, very limited. And maybe that's my message to the public, that uh, we now know that a trillion planets whirl around silently in the dark spaces of the Milky Way. And it's hard to believe that they're all just sterile, barren worlds. There's undoubtedly something out there in my mind. And I think it's worth a little bit of effort to try and find out if that's true. Yeah. And, you know, with with astronomy, what we're doing is we're going for that next incremental step towards discovering a world that has Earth's size at the right distance around its star to have liquid water on the surface and to detect that water and to detect the atmosphere and to look for biosignatures in that atmosphere and to tell if it has continents that green and brown or ice over as the seasons change, if it has liquid water and continents on the surface, if it has clouds and variable weather, if it has the signatures that we look to as potential biosignatures, if it has oxygen oxygen in the atmosphere in a substantial fraction, if it has other organic compounds, that seems to be the direction that astronomy is heading in that next incremental step to try and answer that first step question of does this planet, has it taken the step to go from non-life to life on it? We don't seem to be very close to in, in other fields of astronomy to answering the question of does it have complex differentiated life on it? Has it had life on it for billions and billions and billions of years? Does it have intelligent life on it? For that, it seems like SETI is really the only option out there that people are actively doing to answer this question short of waiting for the aliens to physically arrive. Yes, yes. uh, That that would actually be a good move on their part from my point of view because it would be job security for me if the aliens would only, you know, land in downtown Trenton, New Jersey or something and, you know, ask to be taken to the local restaurant. That would be good news, uh, but I don't know that that's ever going to happen. I don't think the aliens know about us, nor do they probably care to visit, although Trenton has its attractions. So, uh, yes, I I agree with you. I think that uh, this is maybe the only experiment. Maybe you know, maybe not. There are other ways you could detect detect the aliens if they're engaged in some sort of major as, uh, engineering projects. They might be doing stuff that you can see in the course of hmm, regular astronomy research. But I think that SETI is really a good bet 
it cost, when it was a NASA project, it cost the average American taxpayer three cents per year. I think if you told people that, said, you know, uh, that was considered too expensive by uh, Congress, but that for three cents per year, you can see a really major search uh, for uh, evidence that we're, we're, we're not alone, that we, uh, we have some cosmic confrères. I think that a lot of people would vote for that. I think the majority of people would vote for that. Well, three cents doesn't seem like all that much to potentially get the most surprising and revolutionary answer to one of our biggest existential questions of all. Seth, thank you for joining me. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with? Uh, no, only uh, to, uh, you know, uh, the fact that you're listening to this show shows that you have some interest in this topic. And I find that uh, personally very gratifying. Well, thank you. I find it gratifying that you were willing to come on and spend the time with us to tell us all about this. And if people want to find out more about SETI or more about you, where can they go? Well, they can certainly go to the SETI Institute's website, and that's pretty easy. It's just SETI.org, O-R-G. Uh, there's also our radio show. That's BigPictureScience.org, O-R-G. So either one of those places, those are probably the best best places to go. Right. And if you have some spare computational cycles on your computer, I highly recommend downloading SETI at home and giving that a whirl. It's one of the great massive computing projects that's been going on for at least 20 years since I was an undergrad. And it's a great way to help contribute to an interesting avenue of science that maybe isn't receiving very much in the way of public funding at this point in time. So thank you, Seth, for joining us, and thank you for tuning in to the Starts With a Bang podcast. This show is made possible only through the generous donations of our Patreon supporters, and I'd like to thank everyone donating at the $5 a month level and above. Thanks go to... Rob Hansen, Samir Kumar, Aaron Weiss, Matt Rumel, John Van Balaguyan, Dominic Turpin, Tim Graham, John Methot, Pavel Zuzelski, Chris Shaw, Thomas Sola, Denier, Frank, Pedro Texera, Igor Mitrofanov, David Uhl, Jens Kroger, William Barr, Laird W.H., Daniel Nadasi, Eric Brown, Mark Armstrong, Jose Enrique, Sean Foley, Elver Sosa, Flo, Richard Jousey, DGE, John Kozura, Marcelo Barnaba, Rafael Wojcik, Danny, Alexander Marius, Gaijin, Andrew Douglas, Chris Hilly, Jason McCampbell, Weller Tractor Salvage, Frederick Martello, Pierre Franson, Dick Pills, Joseph Dvorak, Hannah Kahn, Andrew Jason, Charles Buchanan, Mark Langston, David Krampotic, Randall Slimak, Jerry Wilterding, Tom Van Scotter, Michael Lewis, Mike, Ahmed Lee Comsey, Jeffrey Kidd, Dana Bridges, Kelly Kudrick, Richard Schwartz, Darren Redfern, Mark Bloor, Nick Delroy, Fraser Kane, Steve Shaber, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Kevin Barnes, Patrick Dennis, Radek Nesbida, James Nance, Sidney Atwood, Nathan Hanna, Tomas All, Glenn McDavid, Benjamin Turner, David Taschioni, Philip Radulovic, John Seal, and Braxton Thomason. Thanks everyone for tuning in, and I'll see you next time for more Starts with a Bang. Bang.